Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. In this next episode, I speak with Hayden Temin, VP of HR Delivery and Operations at Booz Allen Hamilton. Before joining Booz, Hayden worked in the FBI for many years. She talks about joining the FBI after receiving her MBA. We get an inside look at what it takes to run the operations side of such a large organization. Working closely with decision makers, making an impact through business process improvement, and how preparing and finding allies were the key to her success. Enjoy this episode. Well, again, I just want to say thank you for being here and for uh, being on Relatable. And I'm so excited to talk with you. Our mutual friend, Josh, is introduced us and said we would be a great match. And so really excited to talk with you. And I think you have somewhat of a aligned career path in terms of uh, maybe organ change and, and human resources. So for me, like this is going to be fun because uh, it'll be a, bit, a little bit closer to home in terms of my own interesting career. But I hopefully we'll, we'll be able to talk about some cool things. And um, you've had an interesting career to date and are about to take an, a leap to do something entirely new. So I want to talk more about that also. Maybe we can start with talking a bit about your career with the FBI and, you know, what that was like and what were some of the roles that you had there, if we could start there. Yeah, of course. So I joined the FBI. They have a unique program where they recruit folks out of top business schools to come into the organization and bring a business sense to it. And I think people often forget with large public organizations, you know, they are a company, they are a business, even though it is public service. They have huge budgets, huge people, strategic challenges. And so the Bureau has a program where they bring in uh, MBAs and put them sort of through a, it's a rotational program, and, but it's not very structured. It's not like, you know, at one year mark you move, but it is, it's a, it, the expectation is that you rotate through a few different uh, positions. And so it's a really uh, incredible program. So I came in through that and, you know, as a first year of business school and I worked at the right hand of our chief financial officer and just ran, you know, special projects and tried to look at how do we make things more efficient and more effective and really working with his teams. And of course, I thought the most important thing at the Bureau was saving money. That was it. We had to save money so that, you know, the operations could take place. Not obviously the most important work is, is the field work, but like, you know, my role was critical. We could we could save money. And then I, in the next year, I rotated and worked in human resources. And I was like, there's nothing more important than our people. And so just the need to have that experience to sort of move around and get different perspectives in the organization. And so it's really an internal consulting type role where you work for the executive on, on a wide range of things and, you know, had amazing access to senior leadership. I mean, I really was floored. Here I was, you know, brand new out of school and working for the chief financial officer at the then a $6 billion organization, right. um, obviously grown and then later um, in human resources. And so um, really enjoyed that opportunity. Um, but I knew early on that I really wanted to manage people. Like I really wanted to be responsible and held accountable for the long-term results of anything I did, not just here's a solution, you know, let me help you implement it and then move on. And so I ran our uh, business process reengineering function. And so idea being, you know, we, at the time, and this was not that long, well, it was a long time ago, but um, we still had a carbon copy form. So anyone online, if you remember the blue form, the yellow form, and the pink form. um, Triplicate, right? Yeah, in 2008, we got rid of our last one in 2010. I was proud of that. So that's, yep. Congrats. um, 
Yeah, so trying to figure out how do we, you know, help the underlying processes in the Bureau better. That way our folks can spend their time on the important things. Um, and our agents don't have to spend, waste their time filling out paperwork for travel that's done quickly and simply and trackable. And they can spend their time doing other things and making it easier to buy things or travel or even security processes and hiring processes. And can, so, I, can I ask a quick question just about your MBA and while you were there? What, what Well, a couple of questions. What work did you do before you got your MBA? And then while you were getting your MBA, did you have clear thoughts about what you wanted to do with that? Or was it really the fact that, you know, the FBI came, you know, the info sessions, those kind of things, and you were tapped and, and thought, oh, this, you know, was it something that you had known about or it was as a result of being in that program and being exposed to it? It's probably both. So before um, business school, I worked in the public space as well. So okay. I worked for Congress and the Federal Reserve Board and Brookings Institution, so nonprofits and government. And I wrote, of course, very eloquent essays for business school. I mean, really top notch. But uh, in my business school essays, I wrote about how I really wanted to learn more about business and work in business with the long-term goal of getting back to the public sector. Because I realized even while I was there that you know, they could management could be better. Right. And so I interned at Walmart because if you're going to go to the private sector, go big and had a great experience with them. And then again, my intent was to work in the private sector and then come back to the public sector. But the Bureau came and, you know, I just have a strong interest in public service. And so they came on campus and I was completely hooked by the mission and the program and the opportunities. Ah, okay. And then to your point around that experience of getting there and then having access, you know, one of the things that I wish I had done or had had more perspective on was in working with bigger organizations. There's a lot of infrastructure. There's a lot of support, which is great. You have a lot of resources. I was, I think, very narrow in my perspective on how to run a business, given that I was in this one lane. And that was what I really spent a lot of my career doing was in that one lane of talent. And and granted, you touch a lot of things when you're in HR, you see a lot of different parts of the business, but to really like sit next to a CEO or to sit next to a COO or to be part of these different groups in that way, that must've been really cool and, and almost a whole nother education really. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I really, the, the exposure to the decision makers was was really phenomenal and, you know, definitely makes up for some of the, you know, sometimes there are downsides to joining the government in terms of pay and some other things. So, but it definitely made up for, it. I felt like the development I got along the way, even though it wasn't sort of formal, like you sometimes get in a company, right? Where they have like training programs where you're really developed. Right. That's not the case of the Bureau, but I think that's actually cool because you get to sort of figure it out and make it happen on your own. And so the the being there, I, I think the people who are most successful in that program are actually entrepreneurial, which is interesting given the bureaucratic uh-huh. nature of our organization. Did you ever want to be an agent? No. So that was never like, and they were never tapped to do that. Like, it's pretty clear who's doing that versus who's doing or the corporate, or do you see people that go between the two? People go between the two. I was asked about it, but I'm, I've, I'm like, I don't want to knock down a door. Like I, I'm not going to do defensive tactics. That's not my jam, <laughs> but we had, we've had a definitely a handful of people who came through the same business school program I did 
who two years in, you know, moved, became agents. And so, you know, they've got a really great perspective on the organization, having had that sort of headquarters, executive management right. exposure, and then moving out and working as a case agent. And hopefully and as, leadership. As, as someone in corporate, did you have to move it a lot or were you able to just mm-hmm. be local? The headquarters is here, right? In the DC area. So you were able to stay here. Yep. And then what would you say, we talked about this a little bit just before we started recording, but the the idea that, I mean, I don't know this to be true and and you can help me educate me in terms of being, it seems like it'd probably be a fairly male dominated environment in the FBI. And so maybe you could just talk a bit about your own experience with that and, and how did you navigate that? Or, you know, some, sometimes it's the, you know, the people that sort of you're with along the way that that make a difference in that in that lane. So yeah. just maybe just talk a bit about that for people that are thinking, especially women that might be thinking about pursuing that career. Yeah, for sure. So every big big organizations, there's a lot of subcultures, right? And so yeah. being cognizant of that, the bureau. So about 25 percent of our agents are women, and that that number we're, we're, is definitely changing, right? The the makeup of our new agents classes is much higher than that. You know, 38 percent of our goal is forty percent. So the, the, the makeup for our special agents is changing over time. And, but on the professional staff side, um, which is really two thirds of the organization, that is you know, easily 50, 50, if not 55% women. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's, there's sort of that dynamic. There is definitely like um, the agent, the intelligence analyst and the professional staff, right? I mean, people talk about it with the, you know, in the military, you know, you've got your fighter pilots and the whole organization revolves around the fighter pilots, you know, in our organization, the we revolve around the special agents and then also the intelligence analysts, but really more tends to be a little bit more heavily weighted towards the agents. And so, so there's that culture as well. And because the vast majority of our senior executives are agents and not professional staff, and because in general, you know, up through the ranks, like it tends to be men tend to be in senior leadership roles. And so so I was kind of in an odd dynamic, right? Like, and so I actually, and, and as I think back on my career, I think being an outsider and different was actually a place of power for me. Mm-hmm. So instead of being like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a female. And, and to be honest, I'm, I was much younger because the agent career path has all these check boxes that are required before you can come back to headquarters and sort of move up into the senior ranks. And so I was significantly younger I was female and I was a non-agent. And so it's hard to know which of those three things, you know, really was the, was the sort of a package, but I found that it allowed me to behave and do things differently in the organization and not be judged for it. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, I would get our most senior, like include you know, most senior executives in a room, Josh being one of them, and I'd make them stand up and give them post-it notes and like walk around and do exercises no, no, like, and I could get away with that because like I sort of was different and I owned that. And so I didn't really let, I, I really just ignored sort of the noise around, you know, if, if there, if, if people, you know, if maybe because I wasn't a male or a special agent, people, you know, didn't think I was capable, like I, I ignored all of that. And so focused really on just delivering and like the people who saw me deliver, they noticed me and they had my backs and that's all that really mattered. So I think for me, it was just focusing on the work, you know, really doing an outstanding job, 
finding the people who supported me and saw that value and worked with them and, and was able to build a reputation and then really own the fact that I was different and not try to be like everyone else, but like figure out how to use that to help the organization be better. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I think it, it segues to a question then about your promotion and and how you navigated your career there. Uh, One question that I've asked people that are more senior in their career or have had some tenure you know, in terms of where you moved within the organization, was that intentional milestones and goals that you had versus, you know, the whole concept of being tapped versus you or a person hard charging towards a specific goal? I'm curious for you how that happened throughout your career. Is it a combination? Is it more you being tapped? Is it, you know, when you talk about kind of the delivery being most important in the work standing on its own and and really being how people start to know your brand, right? Like I, I, I believe in that. Like, I think that's how great things can happen. If, if you're focused on whatever problems you're solving and whatever your value, again, the value that you're bringing for sure. Tell me just a bit about that, like in terms of your own mobility, how, how did that work? Definitely the sort of more of the tap. Like I, I, I mean, I thought I'd be at the bureau for a couple of years, and then it was fifteen. Yeah. And I just, I feel so lucky. I mean, I kept getting asked to do cool, interesting, hard, challenging things that kept me really engaged and yeah. wanting to stay. And I didn't have a goal in mind, and feel really lucky. I mean, to be honest, just shocked where where I end up. Like, how did this happen? Um, <laughs> So I think, again, that focus on the work and I'm, I'm impressed by people who have long-term goals and sort of have something they're working towards. I'm not one of them. I'm, you know, do good work and good things will come. Did you have people along the way that were mentors or what would you say helped you be someone that got visibility or that you were able to do those kind of, you know, work on those kind of opportunities? Yeah, it was solely because of people who, you know, pushed me to the table and created a safe space to do that, right? Where like, no, you do it. But then I knew that if I, you know, stumbled in the slightest, you know, they had my back a hundred percent. And so being, you know, just, I can't thank enough the number of people who, you know, gave me the opportunity to be where I was, but then were a nice safety net in the background. And, and probably I needed that mentally more than anything. How much of it did you feel even Going from business school to the FBI or even within, and, and this maybe will translate to the where you're headed now, but how much risk or how often were you in positions where you felt like, uh, I don't really know if I'm capable of doing this, or that was like stretch work, right? The kind of the fake it till you make it. How often were you sitting in that seat versus like feeling super confident about what you were doing and the work you were in? Uh, well, that changed. Over, I mean, I think it changes over time, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's hard to put a value on it. I am definitely, I like to be prepared. And so, you know, being in a meeting where I haven't thought about it, or I don't have, you know, data to support it, or I'm not, I, I'm not good on my toes in those situations. And so, but I, I I'm, I think I do excel like sucking up information, right? And like, mm-hmm. who's, you know, sort of the feeling and senses in the room and, you know, where people's perspectives are. And I'm not the kind of person who's going to argue like toe to toe with someone that's not my style either. It's definitely a sort of retreat, go get more data, get a lot of allies. And so, mm. you know, 
so I think there were times when I definitely was like on edge, like, okay, I'm in the middle of a meeting with the director and I am facilitating a strategic discussion and I have absolutely no idea what anyone is going to say um, and where this conversation may go. But I could rely on the fact that, you know, I'd spent hours preparing and I had a whole bunch of different data sets to sort of pull out things. I had some thoughts because I'd pre-met with allies to figure out like, what did I think was going to come out? Like, and game planned it out enough that, you know, I sort of could handle what was coming my way. And if not, then, you know, I had a colleague in the room who could maybe jump in. So that's such a good point. And uh, I wish something I had known earlier about the ally piece. I think those two things, preparedness and then having people in the room that you at least know directionally where they might go given whatever the topic is. And I think I felt so much pressure to just perform on my own and be, and maybe this is my own journey with sort of being a female in professional services industry, which is like, I'm just going to kind of heads down and plow through and just be the best that I can be and not feel needy of other people. And that is a really different mindset than finding allies. And I think that idea of partnering and collaborating and figuring out that diversity of thought is really important, particularly diversity of thought compared to your own thoughts. <laughs> Yet versus I think when you're more, when you're less experienced or you're trying to prove yourself, you feel like you have to have all the answers and you need to be able to just deliver and you, you don't need anybody else. And I think what you described there is so it's pretty powerful. And if people can learn that earlier, that it's not, it's actually helps you to be more productive. It helps you to solve problems when you do it with other people. Yeah. I think I think, you know, as I rose in the organization, just, I, I mean, honestly, like I'm just not smart enough to know all the stuff I'm supposed to know. Like I I just, right. And so a lot of it, it wasn't, I, I mean, in retrospect, I think it's good, right? Like, cause it was always like pushing my people forward to give them the floor, but mm-hmm. really it was self-preservation, right? I don't like, I can't, I don't know the answer, but I know that my people do, right? And so uh, it's probably a little bit of both. So how long were you there total at the FBI? Just shy of 15 years. Okay, so that's, that's a long time. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. And then to make a jump, we'll talk a little bit now about, you know, where you're headed and how scary is that to to leave somewhere where you have not only, you know, you've now have this proven track record and you have these relationships and you also probably have some security about your own tenure and like where, you know, you know, that's probably more a predictable path, right? If, if you've been there for 15 years and you just sort of finish it out there. So tell me about just the risk and some of what went into your decision-making about making a leap and, and maybe talk about, you know, where you're going if, if you, if you want to yeah. do that. Sure. All right. There's a lot of questions embedded. I know. Sorry. I'm I'm going to wander. I'm afraid. Um, That's okay. So I'm going to go work. I'm starting Tuesday. So I'm like, I think 
I mean, I think I can say with certainty I'm starting on Tuesday. I think they finished all the, you know, last boxes, but I'm going to be joining uh, Booz Allen Hamilton and I'll be working on their people services team. So again, sort of that mentioned in the beginning, like I didn't want to be a consultant. Like I definitely like I want to own and I love being on that. How do I support the fighter pilot yeah. you know, style? And so in this case, our role is to support and um, think about HR and talent for our consultants who in turn are supporting the majority of the time, the federal government in terms of bringing better IT and better finance and HR. And so I feel like it's a pretty natural extension actually for me to join them because the mission space and the and alignment with my values is still very, very much there. And it is, uh, it is risk, uh, risky. I mean, it is scary to think about a new organization and a new culture. I, I used to laugh, like I can't leave the bureau because I have a PhD in FBI culture. Like that's why I'm successful. I have a PhD yeah. in culture. I know how to like get stuff done. It's a little bit scary to, to leave that. But at the same time, like I'm really excited to just learn something new. And the COVID doing it virtually, I'm that is the piece that actually makes me really uncomfortable and, and trying to figure out like how to sense the culture and people and angles and stuff through a screen or phone is I I think a little bit more challenging. But I'm excited to, to learn learn a new culture and to be honest, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing in any of the jobs I've been placed in, right? And so I'm like, I have no idea what this job is, but I figured it out before. And, you know, the basic principles and like who I am and how I think about things like that stays the same. And you just take that methodology and you apply it to a new, yeah. a new problem set. It'll be okay. But I, the, the COVID virtual, like, I've been in the office for the last year and a half. Like last week I had to set up a home office for the first time. Um, right. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, um, because I spent a lot of time in professional services, I feel like we as a culture and as a system, like we're very used to virtual work. And uh, I would say the last, I mean, even five years of my career, and that was, Five years ago, you know, it was it was so common. Like being in the office was somewhat unusual. I mean, you so depending on the consultants, you know, where they were, but sometimes Fridays they were in, but they're all traveling all the time, right? So it was this whole culture that was, you know, very much like the foundation is remote or virtual. And I mean, definitely have touch points and and have opportunities to be in person. And I and I just it's interesting to me having you know, being out of that now and being, I do some consulting with smaller mid-sized companies and seeing how it's such a transition for a lot of people that that's, I didn't realize that, you know, you're in your own bubble and you just think everyone operates that way, but it is a big shift and change. And I think from an HR perspective and a, and a talent, like how do you effectively connect and drive people change when you're not able to be in the room? And, and it, it, you know, you'll find that you can do it. It just, it's like, it's, it's just different. And it, you know, and I'm sure starting somewhere new, you're like, you know, how, do, how am I going to build those relationships? But, but well, you know. like, I feel like on your first day, normally you'd walk around and like, yeah. hi. And yeah. so I was like, what, a, like, do I schedule Zoom? I don't even know who to schedule meetings with. And like, or do I send an email? But that's so like, ugh. And, yeah. I think like you said, you'll kind of, it'll, and, and I think the culture will come through too, and you'll, you'll start to figure out ways to connect. And then you mentioned this earlier, which 
I mean, I used to talk a lot about with people in consulting professional services, which is network is king, right? Because people's your product. And I think the more you are working with people and you're collaborating, and then to your point earlier around just the work, you connect through the work and the work then bonds you. And, you know, it just sort of ends up flowing naturally. For you, just given, I, I'm interested that there's like a thing that I'm thinking about as we're talking in terms of confidence and and being able to, when you when you even left business school or or maybe even previous to that, I'm curious, just anything that may have shaped you as you were, you know, growing up or influenced you, because you seem like someone that's fairly confident. And I also feel like in order to be like within the bureau of what you described and to be effective in that environment, you have to have a certain level of, of confidence or to your point, even ownership of like, I kind of know what I'm bringing to the table and how I'm doing it. And and that allowed me this path. So tell me just a little bit about how that evolved or it's not an easy question to be like, how are you confident? But I am curious, is that something that you were, you know, that was, you always had that or something you cultivated over time? I'm actually really glad you asked that because that's probably the number one thing I talk with people about, um, like, you know, and when I'm on panels or like meeting with mentees. Yeah. So what I was promoted in 2016 to become the chief strategy officer at the FBI. And it it was remarkable because like I'd been in, I'd been in our strategy organization for like eight or 10 years at that point. I'd I'd hired, there were only five people out of the 120 we had that had more tenure than I did. So I literally had hired everyone. I'd run both, I'd been in both deputy jobs. Like I, you know, knew everything and everyone, like I said, I like to be prepared. Right. And yet making that leap into being the head, I mean, I really, I really, really struggled with confidence and feeling like I belonged at the table and I, and definitely that imposter, that imposter feeling. So a couple of things made a huge difference for me. So one, I'm a huge fan of Amy Cuddy. She had, she has a Ted talk out there. And back then it was like the number top, it was in the top five most watched TED Talks. And there was a lot of controversy around her because people have had trouble replicating the results, but she is truly amazing. And I believe in her results. And uh, she's a Harvard Business um, School. And so she has a TED Talk and uh, about the power pose. And then she has a whole book called Presence. Um, and you can read more about it and all these cool studies about how literally changing your body And so before, so I took it to heart, I tried it out. And so before big meetings, I stand in my office doing the Wonder Woman. Power power um, stance, yeah. Yeah, and uh, before, you know, if I'm meeting with the director, like I'm gonna be in my office power posing beforehand. And even in meetings, I would sit up before I spoke and I'd roll my shoulders back. And it's amazing, like sort of opening Mm -hmm. up and this concept of like taking up space and what that does physically, but how it like mentally sort of calms you down, but also like makes you feel like ownership. And so I, like, I talk about all the time, am I going away? Like people talked about, it's like kind of a joke and it's embarrassing at first when you talk about it, but like before big meetings, I'll have my team come in the office and be like, you're speaking power pose. So, and I know again, but you know, if you're, I was, I given feedback to the director on a speech he was making, right? Like that takes some guts. To, right to criticize someone that you really not criticize, but provide, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, critical feedback to someone, you know, that powerful and that you respect that much. So like that really has made a huge difference just in terms of delivery. And if I'm giving a speech, like just sort of owning that. So that's one. 
And I know I spoke a long time about it, but it is truly important to me. And then the second was, you know, I was nervous for a long time about, um, again, like I felt, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm female, I'm an agent and like sort of this, um, I don't belong at the table for, for many years. And so around that same time, that promotion, um, because I'm a data person, I started collecting data. And so I'd sit in a meeting and if I had an idea in my head and someone else would mention that same idea, right? It's not like I'm a genius, but right. Like, you know, and everyone's heads would nod. And so like I started, I literally kept track of the number of ideas or things or comments that I was going to make, someone made, and everyone agrees with. And it was sort of that data that was like, okay, I actually know what I'm doing. My voice is like matters. So this, or like, I, I'm not out on a limb. If I speak up, no one's going to think I'm an idiot because like I'm saying, you know, my ideas are, are valuable. And then finally recognizing and sort of doing some research about the importance of diversity at a table and how sort of I'd done some research and, you know, this is old news now, but again, this was around 2016 about how, you know, companies with more women in the boards tended to do better. And that and sort of recognizing the value that my perspective and how, if I did speak up, the whole organization was going to be better off because of it. Not that we were going to do what I said, but I would advance or change the conversation. So those three things really, like I had to prove to myself I needed data, like power pose like crazy. And then, you know, really thinking about how the organization would suffer. And it was my responsibility to speak up. And sort of all that really helped with my confidence. I love that. I feel like there's a couple of things too about what you just talked about, which is one, your own vulnerability to be different. And I think when you talked about the post-its thing, you know, I've been in similar situations where the the room, there's just a lot of talent, seniority, and expectation in, in, the, in some of these meetings. And the more authentic you can be to who you are. And I do think there's a threat of vulnerability of, I know I'm bringing something, and this is probably alternative to what these people normally do in a situation like this, but I believe it. And if you believe it and you believe in what you're doing, people get over themselves and then they start to react to it because the it's rooted in a good place, right? It's rooted again in a place of like, what, what can I do here? And then the other thing you mentioned that I love, which is like this idea of like being of service and, and like getting out of your own space where it's like, it's not really about you. It's about what you're bringing to the table. So the fact that you were like the power pose and then obviously preparedness, it's so important, but that data of like not being deferential, but that you you have something to add. It's like, if you can get that, those are distractions, right? From like really just being important to whatever is at hand, like whatever you're trying to solve. I feel like that's such great advice. And I, I don't know that it's probably always easy to remember or replicate. Like it's almost seems like something you have to kind of always be like, remember (laughs) you have a voice, like use it, right? Like, is it something that you have to kind of constantly tap into? Yeah. 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 Although by then, like I also was in such a place of seniority where I didn't have to as much because it became more expected, but it was much more comfortable for me. Yeah. So in terms of 
just because you know you've been in these various roles, I mean, as it as it relates to leadership, I, I think you know I talked to you a bit about my own interest in soft skills development. I'm curious with a leadership hat, and as you've seen people progress and you've had teams, when I talk about soft skill, I'm talking about communication, collaboration, influence, presentation. So tell me, you know, for you, if you had to pick one or two that you think are critical to the advancement of, of people in their career or, and, and I, I work with people at all different stations. So, you know, you may have a perspective, you have kids too. So I'm just curious, you know, if, if you were, someone were to put you in a corner and ask you, what, what do you think are the most critical or important yeah, I, I always talk about sort of two things that I'm looking for in a new hire and the rest, yep. like we can teach. Although, I don't know, judgment is now my third. <laughs> like you can't teach good judgment. You need to have good judgment. Um, but the two I always talk about are just having great interpersonal skills, which I think encompasses all the <laughs> no. all the things you just right. said. Um, but being able to, you know, make great relationships and because um, you know, the Bureau is a place where it's all about network and getting buy-in. And, and so to be successful, you really have to have amazing interpersonal skills that we're a people organization. That's how we get things done. And the second thing that people really need is initiative um, to be, you know, people have initiative, you know, they're, they're not waiting around to be told what to do. They're going to see something and jump on it and push it forward. And I feel like those two things um, really lead to great success. So those, those are the two I tend to talk about. Um, I'm not sure if that's specific. Yeah, enough. no, I think absolutely. I think the um, the the relationship aspect and and to your point around interpersonal skills again, those are things that I think can get create noise and get in the way of you doing good stuff if they're not quite in sync or you feel uncomfortable. So certainly, those uh, being able to do that and then the initiative. I'm with you. I mean, I think. I don't even know. I feel like there's a, you know, I don't know if, if when, when I was coming up, but that was certainly like your job is to make my job easier. That was sort of the whole thread of, you know, how I was frankly successful was I just, whoever I worked for, I just tried to add value and make their job easier. And that worked for me. Um, and I just feel like things have changed a bit in terms of, you know, what people are taught or what people experience so that when they get into the workforce, they, it, it, I'm not seeing that as much. And so I think that's a great reminder that like, it, and it's what sets you apart, frankly, right? If, if you're someone that's going to just go out on a limb or see something and anticipate it and then act on it without being told, you're like, oh my God, it's glorious. I'll take that over and over. Just tell me a, a little bit about like growing up, were you someone that was really good in school? Like, did you, did that come very easy to you? Did you have like certain interests then that you think helped shape, you know, you being successful at this point? Like, did were you someone that was kind of goal-oriented and driven and achievement-oriented at that, you know, at a young age? Yeah, I was very conscientious. And I mean, I, I went to a really fantastic and very challenging uh, private school growing up. And okay. so, you know, the coolest kids were the smartest kids. I was mm. not one of them. You know, I worked really hard. and was like, B plus A my like I mean I went and I worked really hard. I got to college and was like cruising through my freshman year. It was so easy, right? And so it's funny because I grew up sort of, and I'm I'm not I I'm not a very competitive person. So you know sports kind of whatever. And so I was sort of just like an average kind of student. But who worked? I worked hard for my grades for sure. 
but sort of, you know, generic. I was, I guess, well-rounded maybe mm-hmm. is the nicer mm-hmm. way to say it. But in my, my, um, in high school, again, I never, sports wasn't my thing. Um, we had an outdoor education program. And so as a ninth grader, you had to go through as you know, maybe eight weeks and did all these outdoor, you know, trust fall type stuff and low ropes activities that you can now, you know, and we had a high ropes course and Kate, we would go caving. And, and so you had to go through this as a ninth grader. And then as a 10th grader, you could become a student leader. And so my 10th, 11th and 12th grade years, I was a student leader. And so I think, I think early on sort of that, how do you lead peers? Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's always sort of been, been there for me and that experience you know, as I look back again, I think how much that shaped me and how like, how consistent that is with who I am today, right? It's sort of getting in there and doing something fun and team, that team building concept and, you know, with very little authority with, and really with your peers sort of leading and, um, and running things. Um, and it's funny because after college, I, I did economic research at those. So I was very, in, you know, I worked alone, like doing SAS and Excel spreadsheets and I worked for economists and I, had this great trajectory to go to get my PhD in economics. And it was then that I was like, I don't think this is the right move for me. I'm a people person. What am I going to do? Like sit alone and think deep thoughts about numbers. Um, and so like, and all the work, even that first years at the Bureau, sort of that informal influence leading without authority. And I think it really ties back to some of that stuff that I did in high school. What was your, was your undergrad in finance? Was that your? Economics. Excellent, economics. I'm curious about, you've talked a lot and you even said it at the top of the conversation about just, you really feel like, and it's just coming through as we're talking, like your interest in leading people and having a team and seeing that development. What is it about leading people and leading a team like what is it about that that you love so much or or what what would you say is fulfilling about getting to that point where you move from being an individual contributor and now you're leading other people um I think part of it is just I always love to get people around the table right and be like all right here's the problem how are we going to solve it and sort of that dynamic and Mm -hmm. because I love problem solving right and like you know, how do we, how do we come up with a path for this? I'm good at taking like chaos and like, okay, let's, we've put some order around it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And that process of, of people's contributions and seeing them come alive, right. As they like yeah. sort of put pieces together and really, I just enjoy creating opportunities and seeing other people like step up and do something cool and have them light up as they, you know, take on something maybe they haven't done before. And so that mentoring role as well, I think. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. Give us maybe one or two, because it seems like you're, you're really good at it. And I'm going to just steal it while I have you here. Give us one or two really good facilitation techniques I do a lot on presenting and I feel like you're always presenting, right? So I, you know, I'm in a, I do some consulting now where the group, the company gets on a call every two weeks and it's become this very normalized thing. We get on, people give updates. And I think you've got 10 minutes, make the most of that 10 minutes. Like people, you know, I'm very much about intentional about when you're on and how you can make that work for you. And I feel like facilitation is one of those things that's underrated and that people, 
I consider that to be presentation skills also. So I'm curious, like, what do you, what are some tips or what do you use that you have found to be really helpful when you're trying to facilitate a meeting or a conversation or trying to get to that outcome, reach that consensus? Yeah. So I think uh, the most important thing is with that group, there is a, you know, strong bond of trust Mm -hmm. in that room. Yeah. And one thing that I started, I took on a new role in March of 2020, which was great timing. Um, so yeah. one thing I did, which really quickly created trust, and then I think helped from a facilitation perspective, because then people felt like they had a voice and a perspective and sort of it's now my thing is um, at the start of my team meetings, we all go around the room and say what we're thankful for. Mm-hmm. It's something that I learned at the University of Michigan, their business school. They do a whole bunch of work around positivity. I'm clearly a positive person. Right. And so it was just an exercise that we did there. And I, I'd applied it in another instance of the Bureau and, and I did that. And so every, you know, every Monday with the team, we'd get around and everyone say what they're thankful for. It could be like, I'm thankful I had Starbucks this morning right. to like, I'm thankful, you know, my mom is out of the hospital. Right. I mean, it, it really like, it can go very, it can be very fluffy and it can be very deep, but it really, really quickly established mm-hmm. trust in the team. And it, it helped everyone had an opportunity not everyone took it, but to be vulnerable, right? And like sort of creating some of that muscle, some of those muscles that I think are important mm-hmm. that when you're in a group, you know, sharing ideas. And so again, that's not something, you, but, but it is something you can do quickly in a workshop as well. It also puts a positive spin, like at the start of a meeting, when people have that feeling of gratefulness, you know, it really like it. And when you think, and then you're celebrating someone else's thing, I don't know, like it, 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 it really, really works. I, it's not, you know, I credit the University of Michigan for that one, but that was, that's been hugely successful. And so I use it in a lot of places, even when I'm on my all hands meetings, there's 300 people on the phone. I always start with what I'm grateful for. And it gives everyone an insight into me. And I'm now a human with a family and struggles and COVID and everything else. And again, I think it created the kind of culture I love it as a disruptor almost like it disrupts your in a good, in a great way that like everybody gets in their lane and you're all, you know, your circle of thought on whatever things that you're ruminating about. And it just, I would suspect takes you completely out of that. What a great, what a great tip. Thank you. Welcome. I'll I'll give you some cash at the end of the conversation. <laughs> no, um, spreading positivity and joy. It's good. <laughs> All right. And then lastly, I often ask people, just given now your experiences and and you know w- which you've talked so openly about, and I really appreciate sort of these different chapters for you and how you've navigated them. When you think back to maybe you in college or even, you know, high school going to college or even entry level talent, like what are some of the things that you would tell yourself or just give your yourself some advice? Um, young Hayden, right? Like you're, she's eager and ready to go, but what, what would make this navigation or this career a little bit easier, do you think? Oh gosh, that is a really hard question. Uh, I think one piece of advice I would give myself sometimes, you know, because I like to be prepared, right? I think I missed out on opportunities because I was busy studying or, you know, really focused on like getting that last assignment, you know, quadruple checked when really 
you know, spending an extra couple minutes, you know, keeping up with, you know, networking or keeping up with friends or sort of just keeping a wider network of exposure, I -hmm. think would be one. And the second is not being not afraid to ask for help. I think, um, I mean, you kind of mentioned that earlier, like I'm, I'm good at, um, like in a, in a, in sort of the professional setting, like, okay, you know, someone else take on this financial analysis or whatever, but I've, I've been very hesitant to ask for help throughout my career from, right. Like mentors helping, like, okay, how do I navigate this situation? How do I navigate this problem or this person, but not as much about sort of the, you know, and, and and relying on that wide group of people who are willing to help out. Um, I Mm -hmm. think it just would have made things easier. Do you feel like the first thing you talked about is a little bit of like a perfectionist, like you wanted it to be perfect when you said you spent like a little extra time? Like one of the things I had someone teach me once, uh, it really, it really stuck because I I think perfectionist is a strong word, but it was like the quality. I, I had expectations around the quality of my work to the point that it was probably impacting productivity. So that 80, 20 of like sometimes it's good enough and it's good enough to go. And you, you know, you can't account for every possible scenario. So I'm curious when you talked about that, that first thing of like quadruple checking, or maybe it limiting your opportunities to relate or be, be out, you know, connecting because you wanted it to be better. Yeah. I think partially it's like, it's a little bit safer, right? Like it can be a little bit scary to just be out, like, you know, sort of not networking, like that's hard. And so it's easier to be like, I'm just going to stay home and work on this math project. I think that that's kind of a little bit of it. And then, you know, that feeling of like, I, I have to have every answer. I can't say, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like that's, you know, we talked about that a little bit before too. I think that's so important. It's interesting. I, I interview, I've interviewed two teens from like their freshman year through their senior year. One of them is my kid, but so you would think I would know him, but it's interesting when I interview them, there are things that come up that I didn't know. And something he said that I was like, God, this is such a great lesson for everyone is that when he was a freshman, he was afraid to ask questions because he didn't want to look stupid. Yes. And now as a senior, he's like, I, I now know that like, if I don't understand something, I'm not afraid to ask because it just helps me be more informed. It seems like such a simple act, like and, and straightforward thing. Like, why wouldn't everyone do that? But I think there's a lot of censorship that happens. Like when you're in your own brain, regardless of, of where you are, whether it's in school or you're in meetings or, you know, and you think to your point around the data collection of like, oh, I do have a good idea. Like you needed that data collection to tell you like that you were okay to, to voice your thoughts. And so I think people seem to have, and I don't know if women are more impacted by this or not, but it definitely feels like I I had similar tendencies to, to like suppress that. And so this idea of like, just putting yourself out there and, and asking the question nine times out of 10, someone else is thinking that same thing and they just are afraid to ask. Yeah. 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 Ask questions. That's great advice. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell myself that too. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was so nice to meet you. I really, I have to take uh, Josh out for coffee because it's been so, so great. And I feel like um, you gave such great advice and counsel. And I think from a career perspective and people just understanding your entry point to the FBI, I know that, you know, that's cool too. And hear about those different segments of who worked there. And then maybe we'll have to connect again in like a year 
and see how your job at Booz is going and see kind of what that transition has been like. That would be really cool. Would love to. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Hayden. I had such a great time speaking with you. I loved your perspective on so many things. Loved your comments about the power pose, obtaining analytics, and using your voice. Putting yourself out there and trying something new after 15 years is very courageous. Booze is lucky to have you. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode, and thank you, Relatable Community, for your continued support. As a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe and rate Relatable. Leave us comments and reviews. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, and we also have a TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.